And so I'm excited that this friend of mine, Ben Slaybaugh, you want to come on up here, is here from Compassion International. Also, um, Monica Thompson is here also from Compassion International. They might be dating a little bit, so they came together. Um, but I am stoked about his stories and the things that he has to share with us. And so I am going to turn it over to you. Be nice to my people. Be nice I to love you. you. All right. Good morning, Vineyard Church. How are you? It's good to be with you on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers in our, in our crowd today. Um, my relationship to your pastor um, is that my father in, and Janice are first cousins. And I looked this up because I wanted to make sure I got this right, but that makes me and P. Joe something like second cousins, once removed, in-laws. Look it up. We're distantly related. We call it family. My name is Ben Slaybaugh. I grew up in the beautiful state of Virginia, just to the east of you. I'm the oldest of six children. My mom had me when she was 31 years old which means she spent her 30s, her 40s, and her 50s raising me and my siblings. And then my parents decided to be foster parents when my youngest brother was still inside the, in the house, which, which means she became a foster mama. And I know so many of you here have become foster parents, and that's awesome. About five years ago, I moved from Virginia to Colorado, and my sister joined me on that trip. I have a little Honda Fit. We packed everything I owned at the time into that Honda Fit. All I had was a guitar, actually two guitars, a keyboard, a violin, and two duffel bags of clothes. <laughs> and we hit the road. We decided to do the scenic route along the way, which for us meant stopping in in as many relatives' houses as possible. Our first stop was the Wood House. Now, Joe and Janice were out west somewhere riding motorcycles, so they weren't able to, to be there. But their kids welcomed us in. You know their hospitality. We ate their food. We slept in their beds. They weren't there. The next morning, we had breakfast at Cracker Barrel, and John took a selfie of us. I think we've got it on the screen here. That's us five years ago. There's John, Julia, Jesse, James, and me and my sister, Sarah Beth. <laughs> but the reason we moved to Colorado in the first place, or I moved to Colorado, was because of an organization that I have grown to become very fond of, an organization I work for, partner with, called Compassion International. And Compassion believes, like your church does, that one of the most powerful ways that God works is through the local church, through ordinary people who live their lives in such a way that they transform the hearts and lives of the communities that they're in. Compassion currently supports 7,000 local churches all around this world, 25 developing countries to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. That's our mission statement, releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. Each one of these churches has several hundred children that attend their local project. Now, a project in Compassion is either located right next to the church or sometimes even in the church. And the children that attend there, depending on their context, receive things like educational help, food, medical care and attention when they're sick, vocational training when they're older. But above all, they get to hear about the love of Jesus they get to hear that their story doesn't have to be the same story as the generations before them. That they don't have to turn to drugs and they don't have to sell their bodies in order to get out of poverty. Well, in March of this year, two months ago, I got to travel with compassion to the country of Indonesia. How many of you have been to Indonesia before? Right here, awesome. You guys know all about that place. 17,000 islands makes up this country. It's in Southeast Asia, just south of the Philippines. We got to visit one of the biggest islands. It's called Kalimantan. Literally translated, 
means burning island. I'll let you imagine what the weather conditions were like there. We landed on a remote airport before I could even get off the plane. I could feel the sweat dripping off my body. It was like humidity just came in and gave you a big bear hug. We got off the plane, we got in a car, we drove for two hours until we arrived in a small village. And alongside the road, there was this river. And inside that river, I saw children playing and adults bathing. We continued a little bit farther. The roads got windier, less paved, until we arrived in the heart of that village. And there was a church. But this wasn't just any church. This church was about to become the newest Compassion Project. And we were there for registration day, the day that children get registered to be a part of Compassion. So registration day is one of my favorite days ever. It's a little bit like the first day of school, if you like school. You get up before your alarm goes off. You can feel the anticipation in the air, the excitement. In Kalamantan, if you, if you listened, you can hear the motorcycles and scooters that were buzzing up and down the road. You could smell the food that the local street vendor was preparing for breakfast. There was an energy in that air. But a lot of work had gone into preparing for this day before we got there. You see, the local church staff had been surveying their community for weeks to try to identify which children were the most in need. Not just the poor, the poorest of the poor. The project workers told us they had asked families to arrive at the church between 9 a.m. and noon. We got there at 8.30. Already there were families that had been waiting for over two hours. They were that excited. We walked into the church. We helped put the finishing touches on the registration stations. There was a registration station to fill out your, your form, which told us information about your family, what they did for a living, if they had a living, where they lived. There was another station where a child got to take their first compassion picture. On the way in here, you passed a table outside and you saw a bunch of packets with children's pictures. Those pictures were taken on registration day. Now, I'm a Virginia boy, not from Indonesia. My language, um, my knowledge of the language of Indonesia, it's called Bahasa, is um, subpar <laughs> to non-existent. You guys know Indonesian? You know Bahasa? She speaks Bahasa. Well, I'm not good at Bahasa. I'm telling you, I tried. I learned the numbers. And here's what they did with me. They said, you know what, Ben? We're going to give you the simplest station, the height and weight station. So all day, I got to weigh children, write down their number, and then put them up against the side of a, of a wall and measure their height. And one of the kids, I couldn't help but take a picture. I asked his mom before I did this. And this is a little kid named Franciscus, and this is what he looked like when I took his picture. <laughs> Look how cute that guy is. Franciscus, that smile is registration day in picture form. All day, I got to watch as little kiddos like Franciscus ran around, they played, they made new friends, but they also began a journey that they don't fully understand yet, a journey towards hope and a future. But you see, there was somebody else there with Franciscus, somebody behind him, Somebody just off to the side, certainly wasn't as loud, <laughs> didn't smile quite that big, but she cared probably more than anybody else there. It's his mama. 
When it came time for Franciscus to take his first compassion picture at that registration station, he didn't want to do it alone. He started crying. There were a lot of people looking at him, including a Virginia boy he had never met before. So I watched as his mom jumped in, knelt down beside him, put her arm around him, and they took their first compassion picture together. And that is what his first compassion picture was. And before you get any ideas, two weeks, two weeks after that, I sponsored him. I couldn't help it. So I got Franciscus. Just letting you, just letting you know. Well, many of the homes um, we visited there, um, we got to go around and visit the area. And, and most of the homes we visited, the person that I remember the most was the mother. The mother of the home was the one who welcomed us in, offered us something to eat and drink, um, and then she graciously answered questions about her family. Now, I, w- one of the things that we noticed in the church, or in the, in the homes rather, was that a lot of these homes didn't have a toilet. So I watched as project staff delicately asked questions like, well, where then, Mama, do you and your family go? If they were fortunate, there was a neighbor just down the street that let them use their toilet. But for many of them, they just pointed to the river, that same river that ran along that road, the same river where I saw children bathing and playing before, the same river where I imagine much of their water used for drinking, for cooking, for cleaning came from. In meeting all these women, I've... I've come to the realization that I think there's something profoundly similar about mothers. Regardless of where they live, how much they have, what culture they're from, or even what time in history they live. So let me switch gears with with you. I want to move from Indonesia in 2019 to the book of 2 Kings, 3,000 years ago, in the kingdom of Israel. It's another place where times were tough. You see, the wonder years of King David and King Solomon were in the past. There's war in the air. You're probably used to the sound of swords clashing and the smell of blood. Famines have devastated the area, so you're also used to starvations, stories about people dying that are far too close from home. There was a king named Ahab and a queen named Jezebel. You've probably heard of them. Evil people that are wrecked their country, and they killed people for just being followers of God. This is also the time of the prophet Elijah, the famous prophet who called down fire from Mount Carmel. But Elijah is no longer in the picture. He'd just been taken to heaven. And in his place is a new head prophet. His name is Elisha. It's in that setting that we enter the story of yet another mother, another mother who is struggling to provide for her children. Now, her story may not be found in your children's storybook, but I think she has one of the most powerful hearts that you will ever find in Scripture. So, if you have your Bible with you, whether in paper format or tablet format or phone format, would you turn with me to the book of 2 Kings, the fourth chapter, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. 2 Kings, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 7. Now the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. 
Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. Well, she left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Well, the first character we meet in this story is this mother. She's not just a mother. She's a recent widow. And while her name is not mentioned, we can glean a lot about her from the things that she tells us about her husband. First of all, we know her husband had recently died. We know he was in debt, and his debt had passed on to her. We know he was in the company of the prophets, which I imagine was some sort of ancient time seminary, which also means it was possible he was killed for being a prophet of God. In fact, there's a Jewish legend that says that her husband was a guy by the name of Obadiah. Obadiah was a steward of the King Ahab. And Obadiah was kind of a double agent back then. He worked for King Ahab, but secretly he hid the prophets of God in caves. And as the legend goes, the reason he was in debt was because of the cost he incurred to provide for these prophets. Now, regardless of whether or not that legend is true, we know that he was a man of God, but he had recently died. We know her creditor is coming to take her two boys as his slaves. Imagine that. Now, that might sound really inhumane, but there was precedence for that in Mosaic law. A creditor was allowed to take a family, a whole family, the debtor and their family, and enslave them until they paid off their debt or until the year of Jubilee. But notice something else. He's not coming for her which tells us something about her in his eyes. She's not viewed as having any economic potential. You see, women at that time were extremely dependent on men for both provision and protection, especially their husbands. So now her husband's gone, and her sons, not only her children, but probably her last uh, source of income, are about to be taken away from her. She's absolutely desperate. Imagine for a moment that you're in her shoes. Imagine every time you hear a knock on the door, every time you hear footsteps down the road, you think maybe this is the moment when I'm about to be completely and utterly alone, without a husband, without my sons. You're powerless, you're hungry, you're probably a little fearful. For all of you mothers in particular, I imagine you can identify with a sense of anguish that she's going through. Imagine it was your boys who are about to be get, get taken away from you. The mama bear in you is probably going to come out. <laughs> Protocol goes out the door. Caution goes to the wind. She goes to the last thing she can think of, this man of God, because he probably feels like her last resort. Which brings us to the first point of three that I'd like to make for us this morning. And that is, 
There is a special place in God's heart for those who are vulnerable, for widows, for orphans, for children, for foreigners, the sick, and the poor. There are about 80 references in Scripture to widows. Moses talks about them. King David in Psalms talks about them. King Solomon, Jesus, Luke in the book of Acts, Paul in his letters to the churches, the apostle James, the list goes on and on. The poor are mentioned over 2,000 times. If we spent 10 seconds per verse, we would still be here five and a half hours from now if we started reading right now. I'm not going to do that to you. I've got three verses I'd love to share with you about God's heart for the poor. The, per, the first one is from King David. Psalm 68, 5, he says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the orphans. The foreigner, the non-citizens, or the poor do not plot evil against each other. This last one is one of my favorites. It's one of the reasons I started working at Compassion in the first place. And as you leave the Compassion building, this verse is plastered above the exit door to remind us of why we're there. Proverbs 31, 8 to 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. We cannot give a fair reading of God's word and miss out on his heart for the vulnerable. And our call to represent them in our actions too and on behalf of them. See, it's often the poor that are looked down in a society. <laughs> that's true in Indonesia. I'm sure that's true in Kentucky. And it's often the poor that we look at and we, and we judge them for being poor or for what we deem got them to where they are. But this widow shows us that we cannot judge the quality of a person's character by the quantity of their wealth. Her story reminds us of the special place in God's heart for the vulnerable. And it's through this lens into God's heart that we enter another character. Elisha. Elisha's name means God is my salvation. He had been handpicked by God to be Elijah's successor. And Elijah has been discipling him for about seven years at this point. But Elijah is gone. He'd just been taken to heaven. Elisha's a little green. <laughs> He's only been doing this head prophet thing for a little while now. But both he and Elijah were known for performing miracles and often miracles that addressed the basic necessities of life. In fact, if we were to continue reading in 2 Kings, this miracle is the first of just five that Elisha performs. If we kept reading, we would see Elisha granting a child to a, mother who a woman who longed to be a mother, raising that child to life after he died of sunstroke, making poisoned food edible in a time of famine, and then multiplying barley loaves to feed a hundred men. If you were here last week, that might sound familiar to you. Jesus did that a thousand years later when he took five loaves, two fish, and multiplied them to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. 
And this is all just in one chapter, but each one of them addresses one of the basic necessities of life. The ability to eat, to conceive, to live, basic economics. But back to our story, Elisha, a man of God, is approached by this unnamed widow who tells him of her situation, and immediately he replies by asking her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Which brings us to the second point for us today. God's response to I don't have enough is what do you have? We see this time and time again in scripture. When Moses was asked to be the point man for God, to go be his representative, to, to get his people out of Egypt, what does Moses say? He gives a million excuses. He says, who am I? I'm not qualified. What do I know? What if they don't believe me? And to that last question, God says, Moses, what do you have in your hand? And then he proceeds to use the staff that's in his hand to perform a miracle to show Pharaoh who he is. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, he doesn't just drop 5,000 happy meals in the, in the laps of people, right? What does he do? He says, what do you have, disciples? Remember Philip from last week? Philip's the mathematician, the logistician. He'd figure this thing out. I identify with Philip a lot. That's how I am. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we got a problem. I figured it out. I know what's going on. We don't have enough. Six months wages isn't going to cut it. And Jesus says, what do you have? And he's like, no, 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 no. Jesus, I don't think you understand. This is my, like, what I do for a living. We don't, we don't have enough. Jesus says, no, what do you have? And Andrew, in my, in my mind, probably a little begrudgingly says something like, well, okay, fine. <laughs> There's a little boy. He's got five loaves and two fish. And in that miracle, that's what Jesus uses. In this miracle, it's a small jar of oil. Now, I don't know about you, but if the only thing I had to my name was a small, small jar of oil, I wouldn't think I had much. When I moved to Colorado, I had a bunch of instruments and some clothes. I didn't think I had a lot then. But oil back then was actually significant. In Exodus 30, Moses is commanded by God on how to create anointing oil, special oil that was used to anoint the temple, everything in it, the priests. Guess what the base ingredient of that was? About a gallon of olive oil. In Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, that, that whole chapter, what has David said? He says, you anoint my head with oil, my cup. I'll submit to you maybe my jar <laughs> runneth over. Oil was also used as a primary ingredient for bread. If you look in 1 Kings, Elijah did another miracle very similarly with a widow, where he multiplied oil and flour to feed their family. You see, the problem wasn't that she didn't have anything of value. The problem was she didn't have a lot of it. So what does Elisha say then? I mean, he's a man of God. Elijah called down fire before. He could have dropped a bunch of olive oil in, his, in her lap maybe. No. He asked her to do something that probably sounded quite strange to her. Verse 3, go talk to your neighbors. I don't know what your relationship with your neighbors is. If I asked you today, I said, it's Mother's Day, I want you to go home, go eat your food, and then after that, I want you to go around to all your neighbors and ask them for things, <laughs> for empty jars. 
How do you think that would go? But now imagine that you're of a different socioeconomic class than your neighbors. You're poor. What kind of conversation do you think that started? What kind of fear do you think she had as she walks up to the first door and hesitates before she knocks? But she did. She goes to her neighbors. She gets these empty jars. She returns to her house. She shuts the door. And then she takes that small jar of oil, the one thing to her name. She takes a larger jar from that neighbor, from one of her neighbors, and she begins to pour there's a big difference between believing something, hoping for something, longing for something, and actually seeing it play out in front of your eyes. So as she starts to pour, her hope turns into a realization that this is working. She fills that first jar of oil up. She sets it to the side. She's got her two boys there. I imagine she, she asks her son, hey, hand me another jar. He hands her another one. She pours again. She fills that one. She fills another and another and another and another and another. And she asks again, son, give me another jar. And he says, mom, there aren't any more jars. She looks over and surrounding her is her house filled with large jars, each one brimming with oil. What does she do next? <laughs> Verse 7, she goes and she finds Elisha. She tells him about it. Can you imagine how Elisha felt? He's like, you go, girl. You did this. She tells her, he tells her, go sell that oil, that valuable oil. Pay off your debts. Be debt free. And then live on the rest. Which brings us to our third and final point. God asks us to do our part, and then he does the rest. Just like Jesus didn't drop 5,000 Happy Meals in people's laps, God asked this woman to take steps towards her own release from poverty and for that of her sons. It wasn't easy for her. I mean, asking your neighbors when you're really poor, that's not an easy thing to do. But she did and the results were absolutely powerful. But just like this widow did her part, there were other people in the story that did their part too. Elisha channeled the love of God for this woman, and he did it in a way that empowered her. Her sons played their part too. They got to participate, to contribute. And along the way, they got to see faith lived out in a very practical way. But there's another character in this story that I think we might miss if we just took one glance at it. That's her neighbors. Her neighbors contributed out of their houses. God used a literal village to save the life of her and her sons. And each neighbor played a part in what God was doing. In fact, we could ask the question, what would have happened if her neighbors hadn't contributed? What if they had shut the door or not answered it? What if they had told her, go ask somebody else? When we talk about soul-changing stuff, miracle-producing stuff, multiplication stuff, it's not us that does that. 
Jesus. We aren't saviors and we aren't Jesus, but we get to be his hands and feet. We get to be conduits of his love to those around us. We get to be what the, the word Christian means, little Christs, little representatives of him wherever we are in the world, whether it's Indonesia or, or Richmond, Kentucky or Colorado. We get to be a part of what Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer when he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the question for us this morning is, how is he asking you to contribute to his kingdom? The question isn't if, <laughs> it's how. You see, every single person in this room is gifted with something. Whether it's talents, skills, time, resources, maybe financial resources. I think often we look, though, at ourselves in comparison to somebody else. What did the widow say when Elisha first asked her? What do you have? She says, I don't have anything. And on further reflection, she thinks, oh, no, no. I got a small jar of olive oil. I believe God's response to us is the same as Elisha's was to this widow. What do you have? Because, my friends, it is never what we have that is as powerful. But the God we serve, who is able to take a small jar of oil, the little that we have, and multiply it to do incredible things. Now, some of you may identify more with the widow in this story. Maybe you're a single mom struggling to get by. Maybe you're a woman who longs to be a mother, but is not. Maybe you're a mom and you never intended to be. Or maybe your story of your mother isn't quite as loving as the ones that you've heard around you today. Here's what I believe Jesus would say to you. He sees you. He hears you. Your struggles, your longing, your pain are not lost on him. This widow lived in a society when people didn't value women, much less widows, but God valued her. The actions of Elisha are later echoed by Jesus himself, who met the needs of women in unfortunate situations. So if I may, I would ask you the same question that Elisha and Jesus asked. What do you have? Because in the hands of God, there's nothing too small. There's nothing too small for him to use in incredible ways. Well, there's one last thing I'd like to share with you about this story. I think it's really easy to, to read stories like this and see the impact as the thing that's right in front of us. So in this case, it's a woman who's no longer starving and two boys who are no longer going to be slaves. But the greatest miracle of all is the impact that we can't fully measure. Back in Indonesia, registration day, it was the end of the day. I was sitting on an old church pew talking to a new friend of mine. He's a compassionate Indonesian staff. His name is Erlen. Erlen and his team oversee 73 compassion projects. There are over 16,000 children that attend those projects. But Erlen's story didn't start there. You see, Erlen was born into poverty. 
And at a young age, his father abandoned their family one day, throwing their family more and more into poverty. When he was growing up, the little kids in his neighborhood would tell him things like, Erlen, you're stupid. Erlen, you're ugly. You'll never amount to anything more than your father. And those lies, <laughs> over time, those lies seeped down deep inside his heart. But then one day, Erlen got his own registration day. He got to be a part of Compassion. He got a tutor. He later got a sponsor that told him that God loved him. His sponsor wrote to him and said things like, Erlen, I'm praying for you. Erlen, I love you. Erlen, you're handsome. <laughs> Erlen, you're smart. Erlen, you can do it. Erlen met his wife at that Compassion Project. She was another Compassion child. They have a little girl now. I got to meet their family when I was there. But it was a little bit after graduating that Erlen felt God calling him to do something else, something a little hard. Go find his father. So he did. He found his father. He reconciled with him. And after years and years of praying, Erlen led his father to Jesus. You see, the impact of compassion in Erlen's life wasn't just on Erlen. It was his entire family, his mother, his father, his siblings, his new family, and now over 16,000 children that he and his team get to work for. That's what compassion is about. It's about Jesus taking the contributions of neighbors, of project workers, and of sponsors to radically change the life of a child so that they can be a life changer of others. So today, we want to give you an opportunity to do just that, to be a neighbor, to be a contributor, to be a part of what Jesus is doing in children's lives around the world. Now, Compassion doesn't just partner with kids in Indonesia. I've talked about them a lot. We actually have 24 other countries we're in, from Central America to South America to Africa to Asia. And just outside this room when you were walking in, you saw a table of packets. On, on the, each packet is a picture of a child, a picture that was taken during registration day, but each one of those children doesn't have a sponsor. So as you look through them today, I'll ask you to prayerfully consider if this is how, one of the ways that God might be calling you to contribute to his kingdom. Here's what a sponsorship looks like. It's two things. One, it's a financial contribution. It's $38 a month, a little over a dollar a day. It goes to help compassion do what we talked about, change the life of a child. Educational support, food, medical attention, but I'm going to tell you above all, for kids like Erlen, the thing that made the real difference was hearing the good news of Jesus and he could change his story. Which brings me to the second point, and this is the really cool part to me, that we as sponsors get to write letters to our kids, to do what Erlen's sponsor did for him and telling them that we're praying for him, we love him. They're smart, they're beautiful, they're handsome, that they can do it. Well, I wanna thank you so much for welcoming me to your church. It's been such a privilege to be with you. 
If you have any questions about compassion, um, I'll be in the back around those packets. I'd love to meet you, love to talk to you, love to hear your stories. So before Pastor Joe comes up to close us out, let me just close us in a word of prayer. Father, God, we're so grateful that we get to be your hands and feet. That though you do not need us, you ask us to be a part of what you are doing in every community of this world, from Richmond, Kentucky, to Kalimantan, Indonesia, and everywhere in between. God, we ask that the little bits or the lot of bits that we have in our hands, that God, you would multiply that. It's only you can. Multiply it and use it in ways that we can't even imagine to bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for mothers today and for the contribution that they do every day, often unthanked, to pour into the next generation. Jesus, we lift them up to you right now. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.